Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Renewables. Thank you for tuning in to another week. We're really excited to be diving into season three here and very excited to bring you this week's episode with Equitable Solar Solutions. I have the co-founders of Equitable Solar Solutions here with us today, Rich Stromberg, CJ Gooderham, and Maria Agazio. Thank you all so much for coming on the show. This is our first four-way podcast, so the editing team has a little bit of extra work cut out for them this week, but it's really great to have all of you on here and to kind of hear from various perspectives how this amazing organization came to be. So, um, you know, if you don't mind, tell our listeners and viewers just a little bit about your background and how you came to start this organization. Equitable Solar Solutions is a 501c3 nonprofit program. We focus on reclaiming discarded but still functioning solar panels and repurposing those used modules, inverters, and mounts for development in low-income communities. So far, we have diverted about 15 tons of waste from the landfill, and we are consistently diverting more and more as manufacturers continue to innovate. We work with groups that are disadvantaged across the nation, and we also work with solar developers. We started in a classroom at Western Colorado University, and we quickly grew outside of the classroom in the real world and are partnering with groups like Habitat for Humanity and other groups throughout the nation to directly impact families in need. I'll just uh, tack on there that uh, it was four years ago this month that we actually met in this classroom. And I had presented the students. There were three other students in addition to CJ and Maria. And I presented them with some used solar panels and uh, told them that, hey, they, these have been on a house a couple of counties over for 18 years. I tested the modules. They still produce well over 80% of the original power output. So why would we th- ever think of throwing these away? which is what was going to happen to them if we didn't do anything. And I just challenged the students with uh, coming up with a way to create the greatest value for those in our community with the greatest need. And that was the only prompt, the only constraint. And over the course of the semester, obviously they got an A uh, and and (laughs) developed a really nice program. But when the semester was over and everyone got their grades and uh, Maria and CJ were walking across the stage getting their diploma, we really felt that this is something we wanted to keep going. So uh, it, it's it's the nonprofit that it is today. That's excellent. So Rich, you were uh, Maria and CJ's teacher. Are you still a teacher? Uh, so my role here, their, their actual professor was Dr. Kate Clark uh, at Western Colorado okay. University. And so I was helping her out with a couple of the capstone teams. There was another team and then this group, the Equitable Solar Solutions Group. So I was their mentor. I have also been a lecturer, adjunct professor at Western Colorado University. Excellent. And I'm just curious a little more on like how this got started. You, Why did you have this solar panel that was otherwise going to be discarded and and sort of what was the the impetus for for pushing this uh project i guess a really quick summary would be that the fall before january 2019 uh, i was in sweden for several months uh, as a guest researcher uh, with 
the Research Institutes of Sweden. It's kind of like their Department of Energy. And University of Alaska had actually paid me to go over there. And I was focused on waste to energy systems of uh, taking municipal solid waste and either converting that, uh, the combustible waste into electricity and district heating or uh, bio waste, their, their food waste and their wastewater streams and uh, uh, digesting that to make uh, methane to run city buses and things like that. So I was very much in this mindset of over in Sweden, what we call trash, they consider to be resources. And they, they pull all these resources out of their waste stream such that only 4% of the total municipal solid waste actually ends up in the landfill. The rest is either converted into energy or recycled. So I came with that mindset and there's uh, just the next county over, there's a really nice solar installer who's been working for 25 years. And I saw he had a dozen modules in his office when I just dropped by to pay him a visit and chat. And so I thought, hey, this would be a great opportunity for students. Let's see if we can get some traction. Very cool. That's great background. And we talk a lot about landfill diversion on the podcast. We're actually in the waste energy business. We have a food waste digester out in San Bernardino, California. Um, these digesters, as you well know, have been operational and a uh, you know, cutting edge technology and, and Germany has a lot of adoption, but all over Europe for a long time now. And so, so that's a topic that listeners and viewers, if you're interested in learning more about that, go dig through the old podcast. There's plenty about landfill diversion on there, but again, typically in, we're talking organics, right? And a lot of the today's landfill or uh, diversion laws are really focused on keeping that organic waste out of uh, landfills and, and waste that's valuable as far as, you know, creating renewable energy or capturing valuable nutrients. Um, and so, but, but this is super interesting. We don't typically talk about landfilling so solar panels. I have seen some staggering numbers on the amount of electronics that end up in landfills uh, that probably haven't really reached the end of the, their useful life. It's kind of amazing now. You can pay $60 a month and every year you get a brand new iPhone and you know who knows where your old one goes, right? Um, but so talk a little bit about specifically with solar panels. And of course, we're in the solar business, so we have a lot of podcasts about solar too. So this really hits uh, home for the Renewables podcast. Talk a little bit more though, just about, first of all, the scale, you know, solar, the technology has been around for a long time, but as far as commercially viable and, and a lot of markets, relatively new, talk about the scale of potentially having to landfill all of these panels from 20 to 30 year old projects that are going to come offline. Um, you know, and, and frankly, why this is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. So to put this in perspective, a number that rings through my brain all the time is that 75 million metric tons of solar waste are projected to be landfilled by 2050. Um, this is a study done by the International Energy Association, or excuse me, International Energy Agency. 
um, through their PPS program. Wow. And again, it's 75 million metric tons of solar waste by 2050, which is just a staggering number. And in Colorado alone, which is ESS's home state, it's projected that 2.5 megawatts of solar and inverters are decommissioned yearly, and that rate is going up pretty quickly. So we're dealing with an enormous amount of waste here, and it's staggering to see how much of this is being directly sent to the landfill. Um, and as we continue to see solar manufacturers innovate, which we want them to innovate, it's wonderful. We're also seeing the rate that these panels are being swapped out increase as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, this is sure. just really important for us to try to address this solar waste as much as we can up front and to take a chunk of that out of the landfill as much as we can. So it's just staggering numbers there. Yeah, I'd add too that there, there's this paradox of uh, PV modules come with a warranty of 20 or 25 year lifetime, and then they will continue to produce beyond that. So your first question is, well, why isn't everyone using these for a full 30 years? And what's driving some of this that we didn't know when we first started is the increased efficiency in the technology and the continued tax incentives and for commercial and utility scale owners, the ability to have accelerated depreciation is giving people financial incentives to upgrade their systems well before that 30-year uh, lifetime or so that you might expect these to, to, to function in a value-added state. Yeah, you and um, I feel a little bit guilty here. You, you know, we're, we're guilty of exactly what you're talking about. I mean, um, you know, we're looking at projects now. We, we consider when we sell solar projects, we consider them 30 plus year projects. We are seeing some warranties bump up to 30 years now, which is great. Uh, but to both your point, Maria and Rich, which I think is, is a really important one, uh, you know, you get eight or 10 or 12 years into a project and um, what now is a 500 watt module might then have been a 320 watt module and, and there's, you can get more tax incentives, more depreciation. And so you're exactly right. There is incentive to go and, and sort of revamp these systems much sooner than the true end of their useful life, which kind of brings me to my next question. You mentioned, uh, Rich, I think, it was four years ago, and at the time, the panels had been on someone's roof for, I think you said, 18 years. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and you were mentioning kind of the efficiency left in those panels. Talk a little bit more about that. How long do these panels really last? And what, what happens when you get to 40 years or, or 45 years? Uh, talk a little bit about the true life expectancy of a solar panel. Okay, I'll talk a little bit, and then I'll turn it over to CJ to talk about kind of at the uh, uh, large-scale developer uh, perspective as well. So it can vary. Uh, there's some modules that were made that the technology wasn't as good. The manufacturers uh, were coming up a learning curve, or uh, maybe they were just getting in on the market and cutting costs too much on their process. And so some of those modules might degrade 1.5% or 2% per year on the output from the original data sheet. Whereas you have newer uh, uh, tier, one, what I call tier one uh, suppliers like SunPower, 
who has for more than a decade really focused on what is driving the degradation rates on their modules. And now they claim that they have 40-year modules on the warrant on their warranty. And I believe them based on how we have tested their equipment that is 12 and 15 years old, that's still meeting 95 to a little bit over 100% of the original data sheet. So, uh, so it, it can vary. There's also this mindset, though, here in the U.S. that let's say you have a car or truck and you've run it, you've owned it for five, six years, and there's a newer model that's more efficient or has some other features that you want to get. So you go ahead and you buy that newer module. So I think it's similar in the solar industry, but you're not going to take your old car or truck and just toss it in the landfill, right? No, it's with uh, our culture. We have this this uh, mindset that we're going to trade it in, maybe sell it on the used market. Someone else will do some repairs and they'll be using it also. Um, and for some reason in the solar industry, due to, I think, just lack of systems and networks in place and certainly uh, not much capacity for recycling of modules, that the default right now is just dispose of it in the landfill. And so uh Besides the technology issues, we're trying to address these uh, mindset and social movement uh, kind of concepts of, hey, you wouldn't throw your truck away. Why are you throwing your modules away? Put them to use. CJ, what do you think from the uh, kind of the large scale, utility scale kind of uh, implementation? Yeah, so my background is in utility scale renewable energy development, <clears throat> mostly solar. I've done a little bit of wind, but it's mostly been utility scale solar development at the utility scale. And so uh, my role, you know, how I've always kind of viewed my career is decarbonizing on the front end, but then also, you know, in the process of learning about that business, realizing that there is a ton of solar that is coming on the grid and 20, 30, 40 years from now, the decommissioning requirements, those panels coming offline. It, it's really difficult to, to know what the future is going to look like 30, 40 years from now. And the beautiful thing about solar is that it doesn't have any moving parts. It can sit there in all conditions outside for 50 years and still have a relatively good efficiency um, in terms of output. So that's the beautiful thing about solar. It's all, the other part of that too is that that time frame oftentimes outstrips the commercial life or really the industry. So, you know, utility scale solar has not really been around for that long, relatively speaking, to traditional uh, forms of energy generation. And so I think being in the utility scale space, there's been so much boom and bust in terms of tax credits, policies, that the people who are developing these projects historically and myself included, like the idea of really thinking through what the future is going to look like 30, 40 years from now is, is impossible. And a lot of it is like, hey, will the industry be around? There was a, a, a good chunk of time there where it was like, is solar going to work? And there are tons of risk takers and entrepreneurs that have dedicated their life to making that a reality. And I only, I, I feel like it's only been recently where people have um, you know, in the industry, I've said, no, this is a financeable asset class that you can invest in. Solar is going to be here and it is going to be one of the main forms of, of energy generation. And so part of that is, you know, a mass adoption. But that adoption um, 
you know, could outpace our country's ability to build recycling infrastructure, but more importantly, uh, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle the triangle that we've all seen. That's very intentional for those that are listening that don't know, um, you know, reduce comes first, reuse comes second and recycling comes third. So how I've always thought about it coming from equitable solar solutions is that recycling is really just one step above trash. It's not the Holy grail. And so, any, any way that we can reuse modules is going to be the next highest uh, form of their uh, utility uh, uh, above recycling. And I'll add on to what CJ said that um, one of my doctoral advisors, uh, his specialty is PV recycling processes. And what he's concluded is that uh, even when we can uh, extract all the value of the raw materials out of PV modules, the greater value is still in the future generation uh, power generation of these modules, keeping them in service. It is so many more times greater than the four or five dollars right now per module that we recover in, in, in value. Another thing from that we actually have an advantage on the reuse side is when people say they want to donate some equipment to us, we'll first evaluate the equipment and we have the benefit of hindsight to actually measure it, do thorough inspections and electrical measurements and, and see how the modules have degraded over time. And we can see what's the good stuff and which manufacturers and model types uh, didn't age so well. And so we can exclude those and just recommend those for recycling and make sure that our uh, customers are only getting the really good stuff. That's super interesting. I, I would like to know some of the results uh, of those tests, actually, Rich, um, as I kind of look forward and plan for, for new projects, right? Like who who's hanging in there the best? Who should we be buying? I, I want to ask you one question. On the 4 to $5 in value, is that the cost that you could sell that panel to somebody who would reuse it for, or is that where you're getting that four to five dollars in value? Is is that like the aftermarket uh, like resale price? That four to five dollars is the uh, market value of the raw materials, the constituent materials, the aluminum, the glass, the silicon, uh, the the silver, those kind of things. Uh, versus uh, on on the market right now, it's there is a small used market that is mainly for uh, people who have a system and maybe a trash can blows in the wind and, and uh, breaks one of their modules and they want a replacement of the exact same type. Uh, so right now, that's the main reuse uh, market and value there. And certainly, if you can find a home for that reused panel, it, it should uh, create more than four to five dollars in renewable electricity, right? So that that's kind of what I was trying to get to was uh, just to kind of further make your point that that reusing is definitely the the better um, way to go as opposed to as opposed to just scrapping and and making four or five bucks. So that's all super interesting. One of the things that you've kind of touched on here is kind of the cultural piece and always wanting the latest and greatest, which is no doubt an American thing. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful things about America. 
and maybe some people think it's a good thing, maybe some people don't, but consumerism is certainly kind of the American way, right? So what I'm curious about is who are your customers? And, you know, to me, I think of, you know, 20 plus year old uh, recycled materials. Like, is there a big enough market for that? In the U.S., or are you? Are you? I heard you say at the top of the show nationally. I know this sort of started as a more of a local um, mission, but how do you sort of view this as you continue to grow and there continue to be more and more materials that are available for reuse? Like, who are the customers? Who are these panels ultimately going to and benefiting? Is it residential? Are they going? You know, eventually as we scale up and up and up, are we talking? third world countries, elaborate on that, kind of what's the state of that now? And I guess, where do you see that going? There is a huge market for these panels and we really focus on low income families and groups that are typically 400% below the federal poverty line. That's our target market. We have a sliding scale of groups that we work with based on their need. And we are working to implement those on residential properties, also working to implement in commercial properties, uh, multifamily properties. And then in the future, we are identifying how we can grow this to utility scale, utility scale um, arrays that are benefiting large communities. So uh, kind of a variety of clients there, but really just focusing on families who are the most disadvantaged in communities. And then also on the other side too, as far as people we work with, we're assisting some of the largest independent power producers in the nation to divert this waste. Um, we're working with groups that are really on the cutting edge of utility scale development, and we're helping connect their resources with the communities in need on the ground. And so trying to take the large scale business organizations and really tie those in with individual families and also with developers who are creating low-income houses for those groups. Um, so definitely focusing on implementing in America currently. We are trying to keep our resources in America. We don't want to take panels that are um, secondhand and put them onto other developing countries' shoulders because they will end up having to deal with those resources at the true end of their life. So we would just be kind of transferring the benefit to them. And so we want to make sure that we are being responsible about where we're placing these resources. And so if we're getting them from America, we want to use them in America. And then at the end of the life, take care of them in America. Um, in some cases, it may be beneficial for us to send them out there if they're really high quality, but that's just not our mission at this time, because again, we don't want to further disadvantage growing communities and other nations that are still developing with our, what could be perceived as waste in the future. So um, again, just currently focusing on using these resources as locally as possible. And very uh, interesting. Hard, hard numbers. Uh, just for Colorado, there are more than 60,000 households in the state of Colorado that are uh, that qualify for federal LIHEAP assistance, LIHEAP being Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program that's federal dollars allocated to each of the states. And so with 60,000 households, there are so many more people that are energy burdened and could use our assistance than we can presently serve. That's, that's really interesting to know. So um, I wanna 
push on that a little further, and then I want to talk about energy burdens. But first, I, w- I want to elaborate on what you just said a little bit. Um, so this LIHE program, can you tell me a little bit more about that? I'm not particularly familiar. And is, does that help? Because I'm sure there's still a cost here, right? You have a developer who says, I'm going to decommission this 10 megawatts and I need to find homes for it. It sounds like you help with that. And that's really interesting to me that you're working with the developers and makes sense because once it's in the landfill, it's kind of too late, right? They've they've thrown it in there. I'm sure not so gently. And I'm assuming at that point it's, it's scrap. Um, but talk about kind of the cost of actually getting these panels to the folks who need them, getting them installed, getting the other sort of balance of system equipment that needs to go with that, and um, any programs. It sounds like maybe this LIHEAP's one of them that that sort of help with the cost of that um, and getting these panels up and running for, for those who need them. The cost can range on a project depending on how much reuse equipment we have in inventory and what might work for a particular house. Um, so we have to kind of look at roof space and their energy load, uh, but uh, we combine both our contributed equipment as well as volunteer labor, and then we partner with a local licensed uh, solar installer who's the, the project lead of record. They take care of the per- permitting and submitting the designs, and then we work with them. So uh, it takes fewer crew members to complete, complete the install. Um, but we've done as, as low of cost of one system for Habitat for Humanity homeowners that we had the rails, we had the modules, we had the inverter. Uh, and nice. we, needed, uh, the, we didn't have the L feet uh, for the rails, but we had everything else. Uh, and then we just needed some, uh, some cabling and DC disconnect, a few other things like that. We built that for 90 cents uh, a watt. Uh, for for wow. these homeowners, so very very cheap. A lot of what we get uh, on our projects is around the dollar eighty five, dollar ninety a watt because we need to uh, have rails, or maybe the inverter that was on the old system no longer meets the NEC code, so we can't put it on a new house. Um, but sure. still, we, we have significant cost savings uh, on those projects. Fantastic. Uh, that's. Definitely a, a cut rate price. So um, very, very impressive and interesting on, on the volunteer labor piece. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing, too, that we make very clear with our installers is we serve the uh, lower income populations uh, that could never afford a brand new system because we don't want to compete with solar installers on those households that do qualify for tax credits for renewable energy systems and have a higher income and actually lower energy burden. So it's like, hey, that's your uh, core business. Focus on that. We don't want to compete with you. We want to partner with you on these other projects uh, that kind of expand who can get solar that wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. Excellent. Are you ever able to keep the warranties intact. So if it's a 25-year warranty, but you're in year 18 and you take it from site A to you know house B, are you ever able to keep the warranties intact? So the, the warranty, uh, usually there's not an exclusion. 
of, of moving it to another site or transferring to a different owner. The biggest challenge is all the companies, both those that had manufacturing issues and those that were top tier suppliers that for some reason decided to get out of the business, like a Kyocera mm -hmm. or Siemens. And so they're just not around and navigating that warranty system could get really uh, uh, difficult. And so the easier path is just to keep some of these modules in inventory to do quick drop-in replacements. Uh, it's just, unless we had a system that was very new, uh, it's probably going to be difficult to even find sure. somebody to talk to on a warranty replacement. Sure. And is that a, a service you provide? So if you install on a uh, household and a panel goes down, they can call you and you help them get it replaced? We, we do. We haven't kept uh, spares on everything, but uh, more and more we're doing that as we kind of yep. read the reality of when you get a big company like a Sharp that made really good modules and they're also not in the business anymore. Uh, it's just prudent, uh, and also talking with some of our international counterparts, it's just prudent to keep some spares and, and get a quick replacement versus waiting for months. Or in, in a lot of cases, you're more likely to just get a check from the manufacturer because they don't have any inventory. And then you're calling mm -hmm. around trying to found, find an exact match. Sure. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned energy burdens, and and I've saw um, and kind of researching you all online, uh, talking about energy burdens and environmental justice. Tell our listeners and viewers, you know, what that means to you um, fr from your perspective at at Equitable Solar Solutions. Yeah. <clears throat> so, electricity rates are equal, not equitable. So. In the same utility region, our service territory, one household that has an annual income of $300,000 per year and another household that has an annual income of $35,000 per year are going to pay the same dollar per kilowatt hour for electricity. So in most of the modern world and here in the United States, almost everybody has access and is heavily reliant on electricity for, for everyday life. So in simple terms, electricity costs take up a much higher percentage of household annual income for low-income status households than moderate to higher-income communities. So some studies have shown that for low-income households, uh, that might be 10 to 15% of their annual income is allocated to electricity costs, whereas to moderate to high-income households, that percentage on average might be 5% or less. So low-income households are often far less energy efficient than homes that are of, of moderate to high-income status. Um, so, you know, that's another component of the energy burden issue is energy efficiency in terms of the housing. Furthermore, residents that live in low-income households oftentimes don't own that property and therefore don't have the decision-making ability to put solar on their home, but, but more obviously, they don't have the extra money to lease or purchase a residential solar system. So there isn't much of a choice for this specific demographic uh, to choose where their electricity comes from or to have some uh, choice in maybe their cost of electricity um, that you can get if you're of you know, higher income status um, through you know, getting a solar residential system on your house. 
Um, so they're kind of, you know, beholden to what the utility rates are and what the utility rate or, or what the utility is procuring power from. So going back to electricity rates not being equal uh, or going back to electricity rates being equal, not equitable, there's a very intentional reason why our name is Equitable Solar Solutions and not Equal Solar Solutions. So in terms of environmental justice, you know, the useful life of solar panels far outlives the commercial life of systems that are being installed. And so uh, currently, the, the best way that you know, the solar industry has, has found for the end of life uh, for these solar panels is to, for them to either be recycled or in some cases, even worse, being thrown away in some cases. So you know, what this essentially means is that potential opportunity for low-income households to alleviate their energy costs and participate in decarbonization is literally being thrown away or <laughs> recycled into tiny bits of, of scrap metal. And, and that's where Equitable Solar Solutions comes in to extend the life of these panels and redistribute them to those with the greatest need for them. And so another portion of those low-income households that's the greater need than we've been able to currently help are renters. Uh, there's mm. 60, 65% of low-income households don't own the place that they live. So how can we help renters and how can we help them in a way that their landlord doesn't know they're saving $75 a month on their utility bill and just raise their rent by $75 a month? And so our uh, kind of three to four year plan out is to uh, build our first uh, commercial or utility scale, kind of small utility scale community solar garden that is within a utility service area in you know a, a large uh, field or on a large building rooftop and then uh, credit split up the, the energy generation of that array across many uh, rental ratepayer uh, meters at the utility. They kind of do the net billing, and that way they get assistance, even though they don't have uh, live in a place where uh, they can put a solar array, either because they don't own it, or there's shade, or it's multifamily housing, there's, that's not enough roof space, those kind of things. Yeah, super interesting, I'm sure. Uh, we certainly follow the community solar programs across the country and, and working on a couple projects um, in community solar. So I, I think that's a fantastic way to increase adoption. I hope we continue to see more and more states and utilities roll out programs like that. Um, and I'm sure from your all's perspective, there's less pushback, right? Or, or nope, there really can't be pushback from the landlord because I can't imagine um, being a landlord, you might push back and say, well, you know, this tenant might want it, but what if the next tenant doesn't or the system breaks, who's going to fix it? And so I'm sure those are issues that you're having to work through that, that community solar kind of squashes. Now, there are some places um, I've seen where there are uh, local governments that own and operate the uh, uh, income qualified housing like Taos County in Northern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, they own a lot of these multifamily housing uh, facilities and we would work with them because their mission isn't to make a profit. Uh, it's to sure. provide the most benefit to the people in their community with that need. So we would still work with them and do on site type of uh, solar arrays 
so long as we can figure out how do we split it up between the meters and you know different places are metered differently but uh, so there are ways to work with uh, landlords but it's uh, it does we can't do it in all situations sure that makes sense so rich you in uh, founding ess decided to to pursue a, a later in life phd Talk a little bit about that and, and why you felt that was necessary. Yeah, I have to say Ron Burgundy uh, is my uh, uh, one of my heroes when he says that escalated quickly. <laughs> so we started working on this <laughs> and we uh, we had a certain mindset when we were doing the semester project. And then we started putting it into action as part of the nonprofit under Cold Harbor Institute. That's been our, our parent 501c3. And uh, but it, we realized, hey, this is a lot more than just the technology. There are social and cultural factors we need to understand on the uh, the clients that we're trying to serve. What has been their past history of social and environmental injustice in their communities? Have they had uh, industrial and environmental wastes uh, dumped uh, uh, within their communities? And are they going to see used solar equipment as just another example of that? Or do they see value in this? There's also just kind of outreach and awareness and education of how solar arrays work and might benefit uh, the, our clients uh, that are a higher need and, and energy burdened. So then there's also policy issues at state, federal, local levels, policies with one utility versus another. If you're operating with TDA in, uh, in the Appalachian uh, states, that's so much more different than working in Colorado or working at Salt Li River Project in Arizona. And then there's the ecology issues of landfill diversion and what the life cycle analysis numbers do if we can extend the real life of solar out to 40 years. And then obviously the technical issues of um, what's the quality reliability of uh, issues across the broad range of suppliers. And then uh, lastly, it's how do we build a sustainable business model besides the social movement? How do we have this business model where we don't rely on grant funding forever, that we can become self-sustaining? Sure. So um, University of Alaska Fairbanks has a uh, college of interdisciplinary studies, and they had approached me about a year and a half into this whole equitable solar solutions thing and said, hey, Rich, we're putting together a, uh, a non-traditional cohort of PhD students. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, but this is what I want to do. I want to work on reuse of solar PV systems for social and ecological benefit. And it's, I'm kind of swimming up the stream. Normally you have a, a, a professor, a PhD, who already has in mind a scope of what you to work on, or what they want you to work on. And instead, I had to propose the whole scope, pull my team together. I've got a great team of advisors. And uh, but, yeah, this is not for the faint of heart. Um, I'm not doing this for letters behind my name. It's uh, to show a personal commitment to the program, to uh, everyone in the industry that I believe in this and that uh, helping them to understand all the different factors we need to address in order to make reuse a long term viable model. Excellent. Well, um, very, very impressed with the, the good work that you all are doing. I'm really excited to continue following along your journey here 
and uh, we might have to bring you back next season and kind of hear how things are going and, and check in. We like to do that. This has been so informative. It definitely hits home, I think, with what our listeners and viewers are looking for. Um, you know, ultimately, solar is a, a big piece of the renewables transition and um, getting sort of access to everybody, I think, is so important and making sure that not just the the big corporations of the world who have set, you know, impressive ESG goals, um, but really making making clean energy accessible to everybody. That's exactly what you all are doing. And I am so grateful for you to come on the podcast. We've had a great discussion here, a little bit longer than our average episode, which I think is great. Um, I've loved learning more about your company. So I will be following along. Tell our listeners and viewers how they can follow along with Equitable Solar Solutions. How can they find you online? Or even better, if uh, this episode has piqued someone's interest and they want to connect further and have a discussion, um, tell them how to do so and then we'll wrap it up. Yes, I would say the best place to stay up to date with us on our projects and upcoming volunteer opportunities would be our LinkedIn page. You can find us at Equitable Solar Solutions. You can also check out our website at Equitable Solar Solutions with an S at the end of solutions.com. And you can donate equipment and or funds there at the top of the page. There's a little button you can push to input your information. You can also reach out to our info um, email and send us a note if you're interested in volunteering. So a lot of things to stay updated with us on either on our website or on LinkedIn. And we'd love to hear from you either directly on LinkedIn or via email. Perfect. We will make sure those links are in the show notes. Um, Really, thank you again. This has been such a great episode of Renewables. Rich, Maria, CJ, it's been great to get to know you through this process and really look forward to keeping up with the good work you're doing. To our listeners and viewers, thank you as always for tuning in to the show. We're continuing to see amazing growth with the podcast. Never could have imagined uh, just a couple of years ago and starting this that it would have grown to where it is today, and that's because of you. So we really appreciate you checking in, listening to the episodes. Hit that follow button wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been another episode of Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart. And we'll be back for a lot of uh, great more episodes coming in season three. Stay tuned in and thank you for listening. Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. 